Go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 6, if you would. We're going to look at the uh, first uh, 14 verses of Romans chapter 6. I'm going to divide Romans 6 up into two parts. We're going to do the first half of it today, and then we're going to look at the second half next week, Romans chapter 6. As you're turning there, though, I always like to incorporate the kids into our worship service, maybe even ask some questions. So let's see how many of our well-educated children out there know the answer to this question. Who, who was the person who invented dynamite? It wasn't Wile E. Coyote. Someone invented dynamite. Does anybody know who it was? Yes, right. The person who invented dynamite was Alfred Bernard Nobel. Okay, now, Alfred Bernard Nobel is not known, obviously, <laughs> for his invention of dynamite. He's known for something else. But you've got to kind of know the story behind that. He's known for the Nobel Prizes that are given out each year. And in particular, the big one is the Nobel Peace Prize. But what was it that led him to that, to establishing these prizes? Well, in 1888, his brother died. And a French newspaper erroneously published Albert's obituary. They thought he had died. When in reality it was his brother. I'd say Albert, Alfred. And in this obituary, it condemned him for his invention of dynamite. He, was also, he also used that invention to create different uh, arms and weapons. And it, it condemned him for his invention of dynamite. It called him, this obituary called him the merchant of death. It said, the merchant of death is dead. It went on to say that Dr. Alfred Nobel, who became rich by finding ways to kill more people faster than anyone before, died yesterday. So it was a little bit of a shock to Albert's system when he saw that obituary. He read his own obituary and it changed his life. He decided after that that he would spend the bulk of the remaining fortune that he had promoting peace. And that's when he established the Nobel Prize Foundation. Now that's an interesting story. And the way I'm tying it into Romans 6 is because, is this, is that in Romans 6, we have our obituary written. If you're a Christian, your obituary is written in Romans 6. And we need to look at our obituary, and it should change the way we live. This series we're in, which we're going to draw to a conclusion, Lord willing, next week, or maybe the week after. This series that we're going to draw to a conclusion is about us growing in godliness, growing in holiness, living new lives, lives that are different than the world. And, and so one of the means for that happening is for us to understand what has truly been accomplished and understand our our obituary that's written in Romans 6. So Romans 6, verses 1 through 14, where we're, where we're going to be at. Romans is an amazing letter. Uh, let me give you a little bit of a, a background here. In Romans 5, right before Romans 6, obviously, Paul is introducing this idea, this concept that Christ is the new Adam. Okay? And has triumphed over sin. And just as we were all sinners under Adam, as our head, those who, by faith, who have put their faith in Christ, are under Christ. He is now our new head. And, and he goes on to say that the law itself served to expose that sinfulness that was in us while we were still under Adam in order to lead us to grace. 
So we have Romans 5.20, which says, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Quite a scandalous comment to say. And so it's based upon that, the scandal of the gospel, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, that we come to Romans chapter 6. And Paul responding to what he assumes is going to be the, the uh, negative response to that truth. So, Romans 6, beginning in verse 1. Please stand, if you would, as we read God's Word. Romans, very well, may be one of the, most, one of the greatest pieces of literature ever written. This is the Word of God. Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is this is a, a, a text that is deeper than the oceans. And so, God, we just pray for your mercy and grace as we, as we go through it today and think about some of these things, knowing, Lord, that, that, that this has so much more to say than what we could even begin to squeeze into just 45 minutes or so. So we pray, Lord, that you would use the text this morning to convict our hearts, to show us the, the great truths of the gospel And, and Father, to change the way we live. We can't go on sinning. It doesn't work. It's not right. And for those who are in Christ, Lord, we know that it shouldn't happen. So God, we pray now that you'd speak to our hearts through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated now. As I mentioned earlier, we are in a series called Grow. Uh, a few weeks back, we talked about how growth, growth in godliness is not optional. And, of course, that means holiness is not optional. That's what godliness is. Abiding in Christ is therefore not optional. And we talked about that means the, that we're abiding in the Word of God, the Word of Christ, and in prayer. And each one of these messages have, 
I've tried to drive us to, a, to the gospel as the foundation for our growth. But to, to undergird that truth even more, I wanted to take us to Romans chapter 6 and a discussion of the great foundational teaching of our union with Christ. Of our union with Christ. So we come to, to Romans 6 and, and Paul begins with the question that's on the mind of, of some who have, who have read him who read or heard what he said when he said, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so that creates a question in some people's minds. So Paul, anticipating that question, asks it in Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? If our sin increases and grace abounds all the more, well, well then I guess we should just keep on sinning so that there keeps coming more grace and Christ and God keeps being glorified more and more. The more we sin, the more grace, right? Now, perhaps Paul confronts this question that people are asking because there's maybe actually some who are, who are literally thinking that way. They're asking that very question. They're, they're, they're saying, well, I could just go on sinning because I know I'm covered by God's grace. Maybe you, maybe you hear that today. Maybe you hear that from people today. Well, I'm forgiven, right? I can do this. I can do that. I, I'm forgiven. I'm covered. You know, we, we treat grace like, like fire insurance. Okay? I'm covered to go out and live a life that's reckless, knowing that I'm, I'm covered, I'm, I'm in good hands with Almighty God. And, and so that's the way we live, this sort of, well, I'm just going to keep on sinning so that grace may abound. Or, or I, I, I'm forgiven. Don't you know we're not under law anymore? We're under grace, man. Don't, don't, don't burden me with what we should be doing. We're, we're under grace. Or, I know I sin, but, but God's grace covers it and, and everything's all right. Or perhaps Paul is confronting this question because there were people in the church that were actually challenging the gospel of free grace, saying that it would inevitably lead to this aforementioned attitude. And thus these folks wanted to introduce law-keeping as essential to the gospel. These folks felt that grace, at least the way Paul was presenting it, needed to have rules and rituals and regulations attached to it. And of course, you don't have to look far in today's church to find that as well. You find both, don't we? Both licentiousness and legalism are perversions of the gospel. So Paul doesn't answer his question that he asked. Say, he doesn't answer this question about shall we continue in sin that grace may abound. He doesn't answer it with, yeah, yeah, feel free to sin. You're covered. Grace frees you to do whatever. No, he doesn't say that. Instead, he uses pretty strong language when he says, by no means. Not at all. May it never be. You can't go on sinning. So after you hear him say that strong word, uh, after the legalists hear him say, by no means, they say, they're probably thinking, well, amen, brother Paul. Amen. But Paul doesn't follow by no means with what the legalists would want. He doesn't say, by no means. We must also keep the Ten Commandments. He doesn't say, by no means. Don't you know that we need to follow Jesus' example? WWJD. He doesn't say, by no means. Can't you at least give something back to him in light of all that he's done for you? That's not what he says. Paul doesn't say those things. Those are perversions of the gospel. On both sides. 
They existed in Paul's day. They persist in our day. How does he respond? He simply says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Basically, he's saying, if you know the gospel, if you know the power of the gospel, if you know what's really happened in the gospel, then you know that we have died to sin. And if we are dead to sin, then we're going to live differently. You need to know your obituary. Paul spends the rest of this chapter really explaining verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And Paul grounds all of this teaching, all of this doctrine, in the truth that Christians are united to Christ. Or what we call the doctrine of our union with Christ. My friends, if you are truly a Christian here today, then you have been united to Christ. That means that all the blessings of salvation are ours by virtue of the reality that believers are in Christ and Christ is in them. The doctrine of union with Christ is huge in the Bible. That's why I read Ephesians chapter 1 earlier. Over 70 times you'll read in the New Testament that we are in Christ or in Him or that He is in us. Christians are united to Christ in a deep and an unbreakable unity. And that unity is at the hub, it's at the center of the glorious benefits of our salvation. Our election, our calling, our new birth, our conversion, our justification, our adoption, our sanctification, our perseverance, and even our glorification are all real and true because we have been united to Christ by faith. So this is key to understanding our growth in holiness and our victory over sin. Our growing in godliness isn't something separate from Christ. Oh, I believe in Christ, now I'm a Christian, now I'm going to grow. No, no, no. Your growth happens because you have been folded into the life of Christ. You are united to Him. So let's allow verse 2 to drive us this morning by asking what Paul means when he says this, these things. What does he mean when he says we have died to sin? So my first point simply this morning my, this morning is simply this. Sin's dominion is broken because Christ's death is our death. Sin's dominion in a Christian is broken. It's shattered because Christ's death is our death. Christ's death is our death. Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Now, you can almost hear Paul's exasperation as he says, Do you not know? Aren't you aware of what's been accomplished in the gospel? Do you not know what your salvation entails? Do you not know what God has done for you in Christ? And I'm afraid the shallow waters of our American Christianity leaves most people with no idea of what God has actually done on behalf of his children. My sins are forgiven is about as deep as it gets in today's church. Yeah, my sins are forgiven. And now I gotta be a good person. Gotta be, gotta, gotta obey Jesus, right? Because he did so much for me. Now I gotta just do so much for him. We have no idea what the Bible says about true holiness and how we live in Christ. Paul would get in our faces today, in the faces of the, of, of the churchgoers in America, and say, do you not know? Don't you understand? Don't you know what it, what it meant when you went under those baptismal waters? 
Those who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. When you were baptized, you were making a proclamation, a profession of faith in Christ. And that faith has enjoined you to Christ in such a way that his death became your death. Now don't get too hung up here. Excuse me. Don't get too hung up here on baptism. Someone get me a glass of water. Thank you. Paul is not saying that baptism itself, baptism, the act itself, like last week Alex got baptized. He's not saying that baptism itself in some sort of magical way causes our union with Christ to happen. To Paul and to all early believers, baptism was simply synonymous with one's conversion, with one's profession of faith. When Paul says, us who have been baptized, he simply means us who are Christians. There was, in reality, no such thing in Paul's day as an unbaptized Christian. That was an oxymoron. If you were to say, I'm a Christian, I just haven't been baptized, Paul would have looked at you like you were an alien. That doesn't make any sense. That's an invention of our day. Because the baptism was the profession of faith. It was, it was the way people showed that they had placed their faith in Christ. So don't get too hung up here on the act of baptism. But at the same time, don't be too dismissive of it either in this passage. What do I mean? Well, I believe in this text... Thank you, Carrie. I believe in this text we have one of the strongest... One of the strongest arguments, not only for believers' baptism, but also for baptism by immersion. For our being immersed into the waters is very much a symbol of the death and burial of Christ. So coming to Christ by faith is what enjoins us or unites us to him. And that profession of faith, our baptism, symbolizes what really has happened. That that we have died with Christ. His death is our death. His death is our death. His beating, his whipping, his thorns, his painful ascent to Calvary, his nails, his cross, his slow, painful suffocation, his death, his burial. It became ours when we were united to him. After all, it's the death we deserved. It's the death we incurred. But it's the death that he took on our behalf. And so when we are united to him... It becomes, his death becomes our death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. When you go under those baptismal waters, you are symbolizing the judgment of God has come over you. And thus, you have been buried. And Christ's burial and the judgment of God that fell on Christ has fallen on us through Christ. Verse 6 says that we have been united with him in a death like his. This union means that what happened to Christ was counted to us as if it happened to us. Sin demands our death because we're lawbreakers and therefore we are under the penalty of death. Sin demands our death. The wages of sin is death. That's at the end of this passage. The wages of sin is death. And the only way to be free from sin is to die. The people over in the cemetery over there, because there's a cemetery down the road at Ebenezer Church, and you can find some other cemeteries. There's no one, no one's going into those cemeteries and serving anybody with papers to come to court. They're free from the law now. 
because they're dead. They're not liable to the judgment anymore in the sense of judgment in our courts, our human courts. We have died with Christ. And because we have died with Christ, we have been set free from the penalty of death. The penalty of sin, which is death. So God counts Christ's death as ours. And so in God's way of seeing things, we died on the day that Christ died, for we are in him. So Christ's death is our death. And because of that, and only because of that, sin's dominion has been broken. Sin's rule has been broken. And that's what Paul is saying in verse 6. Our old self was crucified with him. Our old self. I was asking somebody this morning, do you, anybody in here in the 70s listen to Petra? Hey, the old Petra, there was an old Petra song called Killing My Old Man. Now, I can't remember the lyrics of it, so I don't know how theologically attuned it was. But it just came to my mind this morning, Killing My Old Man. That's, that's what's happened. Our, our old man has been crucified. Our sinful, rebellious self. Listen, guys, Jesus didn't come to improve our old self. Jesus didn't come to to guide our old self. Jesus didn't come to enlighten our old self, to redirect our old self to a better and more purposeful life. Jesus came to kill our old self. That old self, that rebellious, insubordinate, blind, unbelieving man that we once were, that guy is dead. I read a story as I was getting ready for the passage this week of a a spy from Cuba. His name was Salvador. I guess he only had one name. I guess when you're a spy, you get the privilege of having one name. He was a spy from Cuba, and he was sent to the United States, into Florida, to... um, try to spy out secrets of the U.S. government. But in the process, he met some Cuban dissidents who had left Cuba. And uh, after talking to them, conversing with them, he realized that he no longer wanted to be under the reign of, the, of, the, of, the, of Fidel Castro and the communism. And so he, he defected. And he came to the U.S. government and he confessed his crime of espionage. And, and as a result, they gave him a new name and they gave him a new identity and they fabricated his death. So that those in Cuba would think he died. And he was folded into, incorporated into the people of the United States of America. And so I think that's sort of an illustration, if you will, of what's happened to us. We've come out from underneath the reign of a tyrant much worse than Fidel Castro. But our death isn't just imaginary or symbolic. No, we really died with Christ. That's what union with Christ really means. In God's eyes, that old man is dead. So Christ came to kill you. You hear that in church very much these days. That would be a great title for a message. Christ came to kill you. Maybe we should change the title. Christ came to kill you, but he also came to make you alive. He came to replace the old self with a new self. And we'll get to that in a bit. But for now, what does it mean in our everyday life that the old self has been crucified? It means that sin's dominion has been broken. You see, many Christians or those who claim to be Christians, live lives of defeat because though they recognize that the penalty of sin has been forgiven and they believe that by faith, they fail to recognize that the power of sin has also been broken. 
And they failed to hold on to that by faith. Sin is personified by Paul in the book of Romans as a king, as a slave master, as a tyrant who reigns and rules over men. But that old man was crucified and thus it died to that reign. It died to sin. It's no longer under its dominion. Thus, as Paul stated in verse 2, we who died to sin can't still live in it. We're not under that kingship anymore. We're not going to live like that anymore. Now, Paul is not speaking here of sinless perfection. The word live in verse 2 simply means abide. We who have died to sin no longer abide in it. Or as John says in his first epistle, we don't make a practice of sinning anymore. The truth is, as John would also say in his epistle, if we claim to be without sin, we're liars. What Paul and John are proclaiming is that we have been set free from the power of sin. But even though we are free from its power, we'll always struggle with its presence. We've died to sin, but sin itself is still alive and we have to practice killing it. Paul tells us to put sin to death. We're no longer under its reign, but it's still there. It's a pesty little thing, isn't it? And its presence is there despite the fact that its power has been broken. It will be present with us, though powerless over us, until these bodies die and we are with Christ in heaven. That's the already not yet reality of of sin's power that's been broken already. But the elimination of its presence in our life is a not yet reality. But mind you, its power has been broken. In World War II, everyone agrees that the end of World War II pretty much began with D-Day. Once D-Day hit, all the other skirmishes that were left were simply skirmishes that were happening after the fact that the victory had been won. And that happens a lot of times, especially in ancient warfare, is that that a victory would be won, maybe even one of the sides had surrendered, but there's still battles going on. Satan's head has been crushed. It's been crushed. He's still wiggling, though. And so we continue to battle against sin. Until that day when we are with Christ upon his return or our death, we will struggle, we will toil, we will fight, but we will see, if we are a Christian, we will see a progressive overcoming of sin because sin is no longer our slave master. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, is what Paul says in verse 6, so that we would no longer be enslaved no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So why do we still struggle? The illustration I use when I try to explain this to people is that that we were in a jail cell. That was our, our sinful condition prior to Christ. We could do nothing to get out of it on our own. Christ came and broke the lock, opened the door, and set us free. But we have a tendency to walk back into that cell from time to time. We keep walking back into it. And we walk back into it. Sometimes we moan about it. Oh, Lord, I just, you got to set me free. The door has been opened. The power has been broken. But we willfully walk back into that jail cell from time to time. So the key to defeating sin, though, is to understand that cell door has been broken open. We're not subject to that. We are not dominated by sin anymore. Sin has been defeated. But that's just half the equation. We don't want to just see sin defeated. We don't want to just defeat sin. We also want to live gloriously for God. So 
we also see in our union with Christ that we are united to him not only in his death, but also we experience union with Christ in his life. And so my next point is this. Godly living is certain because Christ's resurrection is our resurrection. What do I mean by certain? What I mean is that true Christians will grow in godliness. It's not optional. Because sin's power has been broken and we've been raised to walk in newness of life. We haven't been raised to walk the way we walked before. Our union with Christ means his death is ours, but it also means his resurrection is ours. Christians profess Christ and thus come up out of the waters of the baptismal waters of judgment, not because we have earned anything, but because he has earned everything. And thus once we are enjoined to him by faith, his resurrection is ours, meaning new life is ours. We have died to sin and we no longer live in it, which means we now have a new way of life. Verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Death couldn't hold Christ. He was not a lawbreaker. So it appeared to crush him for a moment and then he effortlessly got up and walked out of its clutches. I was thinking... Just illustration-wise, and maybe y'all think I watch too many movies, but there was a movie from the early 80s, Superman 2. Do you remember Superman 2? There was Superman 1, there was Superman 2, and then there were some really bad Supermans after that. Well, 1 and 2 were pretty decent. In Superman 2, um, these other aliens that are just like Superman from his planet, they come and they're wreaking havoc on the Earth. They're just as powerful as Superman. And if you remember at the end of that movie... Superman tricks him. There's this, there's, this, there's this chamber that he goes into and he says, if I go into that chamber, I'll lose all my power. And so they force him to go into the chamber. They, you know, they're holding Lois Lane hostage or something. They force him to go into the chamber and they turn on the switch and you think that he's losing his power. But in reality, if you watch the movie, all the people outside the chamber are the ones that are losing their power. And so Superman comes out of that chamber and And he comes, and then there's the bad guy. I can't remember his name, Zog or something like that. And he wants Superman to submit to him, bow to me. So Superman gets down on his knee, and then he he says, take my hand and pledge allegiance to me. And so Superman takes his hand, and then the music starts playing, right? And then you see Superman crush his hand, and you hear the bones cracking. And Zog begins to go, and Superman picks him up and literally throws him out of the rest of the movie. He's gone at that point. And that's the image here. Satan put Christ in that tomb, thought he had him defeated, bit his heel, and Christ came out and crushed his head. No more. He effortlessly came out and the power of death was broken. And therefore, those who are believers in Christ are in him. We went into that tomb with him. We came out of that tomb with him. And death has no more power over us either. And therefore, we can live new lives free from the power of sin. Believer, you have to believe that. There is no such thing as continuing to live like the world and being a Christian. It doesn't exist. Those people have fooled themselves into thinking that 
they were in Christ when in reality they weren't. Because if you're in Christ, victory's coming. It's already come and it continues to roll in. That accomplishment of Christ, that death, burial, resurrection is ours. Our old man died with Christ so the new man could be raised in Christ. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now notice the tenses here. Notice it says we have been, past tense, united to his death. The power of sin's already broken. But we shall be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now this doesn't diminish the fact that our, our union with Christ, even in his resurrection, is real. And it's secured at the moment of our conversion, our new birth, our faith. That's when we come up out of that baptism of waters. But the full effect of our resurrection won't be totally realized until we receive new bodies. Until we receive resurrected bodies. This does not mean that your union with Christ and that Christ's resurrection doesn't affect your living now. It does. We live in an already not yet tension of becoming who we already are in Christ. Thus, thus our resurrection life will be evidence. The resurrection way of living, this new living, will be the evidence that we truly are united to him in his resurrection. If I see someone living like the world who says they profess Christ, even got baptized... If I see someone who got baptized, but they're living like the world, I don't, and it, I don't see any newness of life, there's no reason to believe they've been united to his resurrection. Because if we've been united to his resurrection, it produces something now. We're going to get that new body, but even until then, we're becoming more and more and more like him. Because we are in him. Not because we're just copying him. That's the great, that's the great lie that Satan is throwing. I wish I could go back in time and take all those rubber WWJD bracelets and burn them. Because it led people to believe that the essence of holiness is simply copying Jesus. No, the essence of holiness is that you've been found in Christ. It's what Jesus has already done. That's where our faith needs to be. Remember, sin's tyrannical reign has been broken. It's been severed. We're now under a new master, a new king, and now we live accordingly. We live joyfully, willfully, happily under King Jesus. Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. United to him, we now live free from sin's power and full of Christ's power through the Spirit. Christ's righteousness is not only imputed to us legally before God, but his righteousness is also taking over in our life. We need to see that. It's changing us. It's conforming us. It's transforming us. It's sanctifying us. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ did on our behalf. Friends, the first step towards growing in godliness is to destroy your self-confidence. Let me just say it that way. The first step for you to grow in godliness is for your self-confidence to be blown off the map. What do I mean? I mean that a proper understanding of our union with Christ kills any confidence we have in us. There is no place for me in the gospel of grace. It's all about what Christ did on our behalf in place of me. That's what it's all about. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. 
Verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Our growth in godliness isn't about how we live our lives, but about how Christ lived his. Our confidence resides in Christ. We boast in Christ alone and what Christ alone has accomplished. He died to sin, thus we died. He rose, thus we will rise. That's our confidence. Christ's confidence, not self-confidence. If those Bible reading plans back there cause you to begin to have self-confidence in how well you can get up in the morning and read, then they've it's not accomplishing what I wanted to accomplish. If those Bible reading plans back there are like food that a desperate, hungry person needs every morning in order to live in Christ, well, then you got it right. Union with Christ destroys self-confidence, builds up Christ's confidence. His triumph is our triumph. He has emerged victorious from the grave, so we too emerge from the waters of baptism victorious and secure. We will never die again. Death has lost its dominion over him and over us. Yes, these bodies will pass away, but we will live forever with Christ. Our perseverance stands on our union with Christ. So Paul comes full circle from verse 2 now. Verse 2 he said. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Well the answer is we can't. Why? Because we're united to Christ. Verse 10 says. The death he died. He died to sin once for all. But the life he lives. He lives to God. So the answer is. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We can't. It has nothing to do with us. We, we aren't that person anymore. We're dead to that sin. And we now live a new life. Thus Christians who have truly put their faith in Christ cannot keep on abiding in sin. It's impossible for them to do it. Only because Christ died to sin and lives to God and we are united to Christ. Thus his death to sin and his life towards God is ours. It's that simple. So how do we apply this practically? You see Paul shifts here. We're going to kind of bring the message in for a close now. Paul shifts here from verses 3 to 10. He shifts in verse 11 from, from the indicative tense to the imperative. Meaning that he's shifting from telling us facts about our union with Christ to now telling us what we need to do in light of those facts. So verse 11. Let me just read these last few verses and we'll comment on them and then we'll be done. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay, so the key there is so. So, in light of all these facts, so you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under, under law, but under grace. So first of all, I want us to see, we look at the very first words there. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. We must consider ourselves. What does that mean? It means we're going to think. Christians have got to be thinkers. We're going to think. We're going to contemplate. We're going to meditate. We're going to fixate our minds on the facts of our salvation. Meaning we're going to read and believe our obituary. And it's going to change the way we live. 
Do you really believe these things that you've been united? His death was your death. His resurrection is your resurrection. Think deeply about these things. Think at length about these things. Think prayerfully about these things and ask God to enlighten your mind. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You want to walk in the will of the Lord in holiness? Have a mind that understands the gospel. We are to, as Paul told the Ephesians, we are to put off our old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Stop thinking like, you're, like the old man thought. R.C. Sproul tells the story. Um, he said he, felt was, he was able to verify it from a couple of sources, so I'm assuming this is true. He said in the ancient world, there was a form of punishment that they would, they would mete out to certain uh, to people who killed others, or maybe murder, or maybe it was like more manslaughter, maybe it was accidental, but the punishment was they would actually tie the corpse of the person, or if the corpse was too mutilated, they would find a corpse and tie it to you and had to walk around with it for a month. That was the punishment. There's too many Christians walking around with rotting flesh tied to them. Because we haven't thought deeply about what's been accomplished. That body is dead. It's gone. Consider yourselves also means not only that we think rightly, but that we believe. This is not mind over matter. We believe, we have faith in the gospel truth of our union with Christ. We consider it to be true. We believe it. We have faith in these things that Paul has told us. That Christ's death isn't just symbolically ours, it's really ours. That his resurrection isn't just metaphorically ours, it's really ours. That's what we believe in, that's what we hope in. You look back at verse 8, there's, there's this pointing towards faith. He says, now if we have died in Christ, we believe, we have faith. We believe that we will also live with him. And this is what Paul told the Galatians in Galatians 2.20. If, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.12, just a little bit earlier. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. John Calvin said, by faith, we, are not only, we not only acknowledge that Christ suffered for us and rose from the dead for us, but we receive him, possessing and enjoying him as he offers himself to us. Christ is not viewed from afar, but to be received by the warm embrace of our minds so that we may, so that we may dwell in him, so that he may dwell in us. So we think, we believe, we have faith, and we remember. We remember who our king is. Because the presence of sin is still real, we can easily be fooled or we fool ourselves into thinking that we're still under its power. But that dictator named Sin has been deposed. The war he carries out is no longer that of a king, but of a displaced and overthrown tyrant carrying out guerrilla warfare. Sin's bark no longer has any bite for the believer. 
So we don't let sin reign. Christians don't serve sin. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And we refuse to present our members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Instruments here could be translated weapons. We are no longer Satan's tool for rebellion against God. Instead, we come to our new king with new passions, with new desires, and we present ourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and our members to God as instruments for righteousness. We now present every part of who we are, our members, every part of who we are belongs to Christ and is for the advancement of his kingdom. From the things we watch, from the entertainment we enjoy, from the way we raise our children, the way we spend our money, every bit of who we are should be for the purpose of presenting ourselves as a weapon for God. We, like Salvador the spy, are now under a new citizenship with a new king, and we live lives dedicated to him. We want our whole life, all of our members, to be weapons against Satan and against hell. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Why will sin have no more dominion over us? Because we've read our obituary. It's written in Romans 6. The question is, do you believe it? Do you believe it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we acknowledge that the great truths of our union with Christ, the great mysteries that are involved in our union with your son, Jesus Christ, are honestly too profound and too deep for us to fully comprehend. And so we, we go to passages like Romans and Ephesians and other places, and we try to mine the depths of these, these texts, and we, we almost can get overwhelmed because we realize there's so much more digging to do. It's infinitely deep. And so God... We just praise you and thank you that you have granted us the grace to, to even get what we've gotten so far out of this. God, we want to live lives of holiness. We want to live lives of righteousness. But we know, we know that it's so easy to fall back into the sin. But God, don't let us believe the lies that that sin has any power over us. I don't care what habit someone is dealing with here in this room. What Sin that seems to be come back over and over and over again in this room. If that person truly is united to your son, Jesus Christ, Father, we know that sin has no power. It's a weakling. It's been crushed. So God, we pray that you'd help us take hold by faith of the victory we have in Jesus Christ. Knowing that his death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. And thus we walk in a whole new resurrection type of life. Changing everything. Everything that we do. Everything that we touch. Everything that we think about. Should be changed in light of the gospel. Pray all this in Jesus name. Amen.